Hi, and welcome to Deep North, the podcast where we tell stories from Iceland. I am Iceland Review editor Greta Sigríður Einarsdóttir, and here with me is staff writer Erik Pomrenke, who's here to tell us all about whaling in Iceland uh, from his article Sea Change. Last spring, journalists and activists gathered in a quiet fjord an hour's drive north of Reykjavik. There was a small harbor, but no fishermen bringing in the day's catch. For what these guys were fishing, they needed a bigger boat. The whaling ships of Kvalud were preparing for a season of fin whale hunting, planning to sail out and harpoon 160 animals in what was to be Iceland's last whaling season. There had been talk of halting the controversial practice after results from the 2022 whaling report found that current whaling methods violated Iceland's animal welfare regulations. On June 20, just as the whaling season was about to start, Minister of Food, Agriculture and Fisheries Svandis Svavarsdottir instituted a temporary halt on the hunt in order to further assess the situation. At the time of writing, the future of whaling in Iceland is uncertain. Has the last whale already been harpooned, flensed, and frozen? Only time will tell. Many species in the ocean are adapted to one zone and live their entire life there. Because whales dive deep for their food, they ensure that resources stay in circulation in a process known as the whale pump. Most rorqual, a group including blue, humpback and fin whales, dive hundreds of meters in search of food. Their migrations often take them from high-nutrient feeding grounds to low-nutrient breeding grounds ensuring a more even distribution of nitrogen and other vital nutrients throughout the ocean. Whales' ability to cycle nutrients through their environment also makes many other species dependent on them. Phytoplankton, for example, thrive where whales thrive. It's been estimated that phytoplankton contribute 50% of all oxygen to our atmosphere, and in doing so, capture around 37 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which represents 40% of all CO2 produced annually. Over the course of their 100-year-long lives, fin whales can grow to weigh upwards of 100 tons. The average great whale stores 33 tons of CO2 in its body. Big Fish Dr. Etta Elisabeth Magnusdottir Whales defecate and emit fecal plumes that are quite buoyant, Dr. Etta Elisabeth Magnusdottir tells me. It hasn't been measured how long they stay afloat, but we know that the nitrogen and other inorganic nutrients are bioavailable for other species. In addition to being a great conversation starter, this fact about whales is vitally important for their ecosystem. Fin whales are massive animals second only to blue whales in size. Because of how big they are, great whales have also captured increasing interest from environmentalists looking for no-tech carbon sequestration solutions. A whale, seen in terms of carbon capture, is a forest unto itself. If whale populations were to return to their pre-industrial levels, estimated at around 4 to 5 million individuals globally, 
they would sequester the equivalent of four additional Amazon rainforests. With many carbon sequestration technologies still in their early stages, and the average great whale storing 33 tons of CO2 in its body, one of the most effective ways of capturing carbon may simply be leaving the whales in peace. The largest animals in an ecosystem also often play a role that's qualitatively different from other species down the trophic ladder. With vertebrates, the metabolism is scaled to the size of the animal, Etta explains. During their lifetime, larger species accumulate more in their bodies, and each individual releases more as well. For the largest whale species, including fin whales, we also have proportionally more nitrogen and other nutrients emitted back into the environment than smaller species. The largest species also engage in what ecologists call top-down regulation, a famous example of which is the 1995 reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park. After being hunted to local extinction, 41 wolves were reintroduced to the area. Their population didn't just thrive. It changed the entire landscape. The elk had overgrazed much of the rangeland and eroded many of the riverbanks, Etta tells me. But with the reintroduction of the wolves, we saw more distributed grazing, healthier rivers, and benefits across the entire ecosystem. And we see similar effects with whales. The largest baleen whales have been in their current forms for approximately 15 million years, Etta continues which shows us that this is quite a sustainable form of life. Often, we think of these apex predators as something that only takes, eats, or kills. This is especially relevant, because this has become a key argument in the Icelandic pro-whaling camp, that the whales are eating all the fish. To ensure a healthier fish stock, the argument goes, the whale population needs to be managed. But the, quote, whale big eats a lot argument isn't backed by science, Etta says, chuckling. Ecosystems are so complex, we can forget this when we fixate on what the whale is simply taking. Animals often have more than one role in their ecosystem, and in the case of whales, they also regulate the trophic levels below them. Yes, they take a lot, but in taking, they are regulating their environment, she says. The complexity of ecosystems and food chains also muddies the picture for the well-meaning. Finding ways to fund environmentalism is often difficult, and one proposed solution from the IMF has been to create an international whale exchange, which values the environmental labor that whales perform by sequestering carbon. In this way, stakeholders who incur costs perhaps a logistics company that reroutes a shipping lane to protect a breeding ground, might be compensated for their work in protecting this international public good. Etta, however, is skeptical. At the moment, the science is still unclear, she tells me. We don't know with certainty if the existence of this many whales will neutralize this many flights or the emissions of this many factories. Money is fungible, infinitely interchangeable across nations, cultures, and borders. Less so with whales.
While the equation whales equal carbon is a tempting one to make, it doesn't reflect the complex role that these beings are playing in our oceans. Although the debate over whaling has been dramatic and emotional at times, Etta thinks that it's been for the best. Icelandic society has changed so much in this regard, she tells me. The knowledge of the general population has increased significantly over the past years. Public opinion is so central to whether or not we whale. I can't say that I would approve of whaling, given our current knowledge and methods, but if we can base our decisions on good science, then that should be the decision that we make. Given current rates on the carbon markets, the International Monetary Fund appraises an average great whale at $2 million. In total, the IMF values global whale stocks as representing $1 trillion of carbon sequestration. Making the cut. Einar. My wife and I were moving back to Iceland after living abroad for a while, says Einar. That isn't his real name, but whaling can be a sensitive topic, and he's chosen to remain anonymous. We were a bit tight on money, and a friend told me that there might be some work at Kvalud. For two whaling seasons, Einar worked for Kvalud, the only whaling company in Iceland. Founded in 1947 by Loftur Bjarnason, and now run by his son Christian Lofsson, Kvalur isn't just a whaling company. It's also a major investment firm, with large shares in many Icelandic companies ranging from banking to information technology and food processing. Kvalur acquired an old American naval base in the aptly named Kvalfjörður, Whale Fjord, in 1948, which it converted into a whaling station, the only one of its kind in Iceland. It was there that Einar worked in meat processing and packing. It's good money, he tells me. Einar had a history of similar jobs, having worked at various times in kitchens, an aluminum smelter, and a fish processing plant. For someone without specialized training in rural Iceland, a summer at Kvalur is one of the best-paying jobs there is. But it's a job for the young guys, he continues. You work long hours, the work is hard, and the breaks are short. There aren't many experiences that prepare you for cutting apart the world's second-largest animal with power saws, and one can only imagine that the first day of work at Kvalur was nothing short of surreal. But not so for Einar. It really wasn't so strange for me, he explains. My dad and some friends of mine had worked there before, so I'd seen pictures and I knew what to expect. It's not exactly the kind of work that's advertised on online job boards. And in typically Icelandic fashion, one needs to know someone, whether a brother-in-law, a cousin's boyfriend, or just an old school buddy from the area. The hermetic nature of this world brings up obvious comparisons with the mafia, but Einar laughs off this analogy. No, it's not like that at all, he tells me. You might need to know someone, but that's because it's just a whole different life. Lots of people come and go there, and if it's a bit secretive, then that's also because it can be a kind of taboo job as well. One workday at the whaling station is much like another, 
as breaking down a whale carcass doesn't tend to vary much. On a typical day, one of the ships would come in with one to two whales, Anar says. Two is the maximum one whaling vessel can bring back to land, and it's for the best, as Anar recounts stories of the excesses of the 70s and 80s. Prior to the 1986 sinking of the ships Kvalur 6 and Kvalur 7 by activists, Christian Lofsen's whaling fleet comprised four vessels. The team at the whaling station sometimes had difficulty keeping up with the pile of whales, sometimes up to ten at a time. It was far before his time there, but Einar tells me stories of how the last whales spoiled from sitting out too long. These whales, he tells me, were boiled down. These days, the operation is humbler, with typically only one whale processed at a time. When the ship's dock, we have to drag it with a big winch onto the deck for flensing, Anar explains. Flensing is the process of separating the whale's tough outer skin and blubber from the meat using special knives, razor sharp and mounted on poles. There was usually a team of two or three flensing the whale, Inar recalls. Then you had six or seven, quote, on the knives, as we said, referring to the power saws, and a couple more guys on forklifts and in the warehouse. Typically, about 30 men worked on the station at a time. Whaling is such a specialized industry that much of the equipment used at the whaling station is one of a kind. It was kind of wild to be around these old steam-powered saws, he says. A lot of this stuff was made in Norway back in the 40s and 50s. He makes an illustrative da-da-da-da-da noise to mimic the saw. Whales are mammals, and they break down into cuts of meat not unlike beef, pork, and lamb. According to Einar, the most desirable cut is the sirloin from the very end of the whale's back, where the tail meets the spine. It's more delicate, he tells me. I had it once as sashimi with some soy sauce and wasabi. It was really good. He corrects himself, adding, or maybe it was tatar. It was basically a cow after all. The meat from under the jaw is also seen as particularly desirable. This is generally the cut of whale meat that is used in traditional Icelandic surkvalur, or pickled whale, fermented in misa, or whey. As Einar says... I don't like a lot of thoramatur, traditional Icelandic food, but I think the whale is pretty good. Notably, all of the whale consumed in Iceland is minky whale, imported from Norway. All fin whale caught and processed by kvalud is exported to Japan. In the public discussion of whaling, one side has claimed that whaling is an Icelandic tradition, stretching back to the days of settlement, when stranded whales, kvalrekar, served as an important food source. So much so that the earliest Icelandic laws contained detailed provisions on the property rights to such whales. Activists, on the other hand, have pointed out that Iceland had no native whaling industry until quite late. All of the whaling, according to them, was carried out by Basque, English, and Norwegian whalers, perhaps with some native crew aboard. Both of these sides contain an element of the truth, But there is no simple answer to the question, how Icelandic is whaling? To Einar, however, the answer is clear. In the Faroe Islands, he tells me, they distribute it to the whole community. That's a real tradition. 
But in Iceland, it's very cut off from the rest of society. I don't see the end of whaling really affecting many besides Christian Lofsson, but he has his investments, so he'll be fine. It's just one company, and it's all sold abroad. I think the most Icelandic thing about whaling is marketing stuff in foreign countries to make a quick buck. Iceland Nature Conservation Association has learned that Sea Shepherd intends to take action against whaling activities in Icelandic waters this summer. The INCA urges you not to do this as it will, at best, be meaningless. At worst, such actions will but strengthen Iceland's resolve to carry on its whaling activities. It is our conviction that Sea Shepherd's action of sinking two whaling ships in Reykjavik Harbor in November 1986, prolonged the life of a dying industry. A 2007 letter from Árni Finnsson, then chairperson of the Iceland Nature Conservation Association, to Paul Watson, founder of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Philosophy and Megafauna, Dr. Henry Alexander Henryson. Hunting will always involve some stress to the animal. Henry Alexander tells me. Even in very controlled situations, it's difficult to kill any animal in a humane way. I've always been open to the possibility that there are moral arguments for hunting, but if you're going to hunt, there is a broad consensus that you have to meet certain criteria. Is it sustainable? Is it a necessary food source? And is it done with regard for the welfare of the animal? Henry Alexander Henryson holds a PhD in ethical philosophy from the University of Reading and has taught at the University of Iceland for some years. As is fitting for an ethical philosopher, concerned as they are with real-world problems, Henry Alexander has also spent a fair time outside the ivory tower as well, being a member of the National Bioethics Committee the National Animal Welfare Review Board, and the Board of the Center for Ethics. He's also a frequent commentator in Icelandic media, being labeled recently by Christian Lofsson as a, quote, off-the-rails ethicist. If we're being generous, whaling could indeed meet some of these conditions, he continues. I'm not totally comfortable with that logic. What if other nations also took 160 fin whales each season? But even for a vulnerable species, hunting 160 likely doesn't have a large impact on the population. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, global fin whale populations are estimated at 100,000 individuals and increasing. In sheer terms of biomass, they are actually the most abundant species on Earth. So, for the sake of argument, let's grant that it could be sustainable. Even if that's the case, whaling still has much to answer for. To illustrate a dilemma, ethicists often reach for similar situations that are better understood. A popular comparison is reindeer hunting, which has a much clearer consensus. As an introduced species, Icelandic reindeer have no natural predators. Additionally, the landscape only supports some 5,000 of these animals, and reindeer can starve to death over the winter if the herds are not managed properly. So, every year in Iceland, a panel of scientists determines the hunting quota 
and most Icelanders accept this situation. Now, the culling argument obviously cannot apply to whales, Henry tells me. Of course, the fin whale is recognized as a vulnerable species. But marine populations are different from reindeer in that they migrate as they want. So food scarcity just isn't an issue for these animals. To ensure that reindeer do not suffer unnecessarily, Icelandic hunters are required to go through rigorous firearms training and prove that they can consistently and cleanly hit their target. They are also required to be accompanied by a certified guide, who, among other things, helps hunters select reindeer unaccompanied by calves. But, as Henry explains, this is the point where the reindeer hunting analogy breaks down. We've made a decision as a society, he tells me, that if we choose to hunt, then we have to be able to do it humanely. Some have made the argument that it's possible to instantly kill minke whales because they're relatively small. But in Iceland, we hunt fin whale. We're talking about the second largest animal on Earth. It's so difficult to do in the wild, sometimes you're not even sure what species you're hunting. On land, it's at least theoretically possible to do with certainty. At sea, it's more like 50 or 60% certainty. We would never allow reindeer hunting to go on with that level of uncertainty. Modern commercial whaling still uses harpoons, which likely conjure up images from Moby Dick, a harpooner and his mate, bravely perched in the prow, striving hand to fin against the leviathan. Prior to modern whaling, whales would have suffered agonizing fates, being dealt multiple harpoon blows before finally bleeding to death. Modern whaling, beginning with the 1864 invention of the harpoon cannon by Norwegian Svent Foyn, represented an advance in this regard. Modern grenade harpoons are tipped with an explosive. Upon firing, the harpoon enters the cetacean, hopefully near the cranium, and detonates. The whale will suffer a massive concussion and die from internal bleeding. In theory, this can occur quite quickly. How often whalers are able to humanely kill their quarry was the subject of an important and much-awaited report on the 2022 whaling season by MAST, the Icelandic Food and Veterinary Authority. The report was based on video surveillance footage from 58 whale killings. As a member of the Animal Welfare Review Board, Henry was privy to these videos. They are quite shocking to watch, he tells me. I admit I always thought it would be very hard to get a direct hit, but in general they do hit their target. This was probably what surprised me the most. But then we come back to the core problem. You simply cannot ensure the quick, humane death of such a large animal. According to the report, of the 58 whales killed, 35, or 59%, were killed instantaneously, according to the International Whaling Commission's definition of instant death. Some 14 whales, or 24%, were shot more than once, while two whales had to be shot four times. Median time to death, or TTD, of those whales which did not die instantly was found to be 11 and a half minutes. As a philosopher, Henry Alexander is concerned with principles. We begin from first principles, and from there, our rules become more and more specific to address the issue at hand. 
The problem with whaling, however, is the irreducible messiness of it. While regulators can ban whalers from hunting pregnant or lactating cows, the difficulties of whaling all but guarantee that such accidents as the 2018 killing of a pregnant cow in Iceland are not isolated events. It is one thing to regulate whaling with a mind towards animal welfare. It is another thing entirely to ensure that rules are followed. Throughout the many arguments and counter-arguments that we run through, there is one fact that we keep returning to, a sheer matter of biology that no amount of clever reasoning and sophistry can alter. There's no way to consistently give the world's second largest animal a humane death. It is for that reason that, for Henry Alexander, whaling must end. We could have stopped it so much sooner, he tells me. I think this will be something that will hurt us in the long run. I think this will be something we'll be ashamed of in the future. We will look back and say, how on earth did Christian Lofsen get these permits again and again? According to a 2019 survey, 42% of Icelanders opposed whaling, while 32% supported the practice. As of May 2023, 51% of Icelanders opposed it, and 29% supported it. A Child of Its Time The International Whaling Commission states on their website... In 1982, the IWC decided that there will be a pause in commercial whaling on all whale species and populations from the 1985 to 1986 season onwards. This pause is often referred to as the commercial whaling moratorium, and it remains in place today. Despite this, Norway, Iceland, and Japan, as well as several other Aboriginal nations, still hunt hundreds of whales per year. While stocks are recovering and repopulating the oceans, it takes a while to grow something as big as a whale. For now, Icelanders will let them be. Thank you for this, Eric. Um, it's such an interesting topic, uh, whaling in Iceland, with many different viewpoints. But before we dive into all that, could you just give us a little bit of an update on what the current situation is? Yeah, so um, the whaling ban uh, was set to uh, be lifted um, at the beginning of September, and it was. Um, and basically, the whaling ships haven't gone out yet uh, because the weather was bad. There was a storm over the weekend, and the whaling ships were set to go out this week. Um, and as we're talking, uh, so yesterday... Yeah, so there were these uh, two activists, uh, Anahita and Eliza. Alyssa. Alyssa. Two yeah. S's. Um, and they climbed up into the crow's nests of Kvalur 8 and 9 down in the Reykjavik Harbor and, uh, you know, kind of barricaded themselves up there um, and refused to leave. And right now, as we're talking, I mean, I believe, what, just within 30 minutes, an hour ago or so? Yeah, uh, while we were recording, uh, it seems that police have escorted them down. They seem to have left on their own free will after having spent 33 hours up in the mast, um, one of the uh, one of them without food or water for the majority of that 
period. Yeah, so that is a situation. And, um, you know, this is obviously a very controversial and uh, there's a lot of people that oppose whaling, obviously. But, I mean, if everything is kind of going as it should be going, we will be resuming whaling uh, within the week. I mean, I don't know what else might uh, happen. Uh, obviously, it's a very kind of fluid situation still, uh, but we are still in theory set to have what is likely the last whaling season. Mm. But uh, it's often hard to tell. It's also a, a hot button issue politically. And while uh, the current uh, fisheries minister, uh, Svante Svarstotter, opposes whaling, uh, she is the first such minister in a while to do so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, not to get too into it, but uh, there were uh, stories, for instance, of Christian Lofsson kind of having uh, maybe a little bit too much access to previous ministers and maybe a little bit too much influence. And, you know, I mean, inevitably, uh, you know, like this is, of course, not a problem that's unique to Iceland, but I mean, very often the people that have a lot of expertise in a certain industry you know, they might have a career that spans both the government, but also working in industry. And so, you know, you might uh, both end up as a regulator, but then maybe also you are working in that industry. And sometimes there's somewhat uh, fuzzy boundaries between uh, where you're working. Right. Uh, the incident you're referring to is probably the, the email Christian Lofsson sent to uh, the former minister uh, requesting a change in regulation wording, which was then promptly um, implemented. Yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I mean, in case it's not obvious, um, you know, like what I just kind of wanted to briefly do here uh, since, you know, I mean, of course, it's always impossible to tell, but at least at the beginning of the summer, as I was beginning to think about this, it did seem pretty certain that this was going to be the last whaling season. And just kind of collecting some different perspectives, I thought, was kind of important because, you know, I mean, <clears throat> rightfully, I mean, a lot of people um, oppose whaling. But, you know, I mean, sometimes we also don't uh, maybe have the full picture. And I just thought it was kind of important to present, um, you know, of course, some arguments against and some scientific context. But, you know, I mean, also... If, you know, I mean, like for me, the most interesting thing was also just talking with Einar. Mm. Uh, like you do not talk with somebody who works in a whale processing plant every day. And, you know, I mean, just personally for me, I was just really curious as to how it works. Yeah. I mean, like in a totally, you know, like amoral sense. I mean, like obviously that's not to say that I think this is good and it should still be happening. But, you know, I mean, I just have no insight into that world. And so that was a really, really interesting conversation to me to just kind of get a little glimpse into, yeah, I mean, like, what does a daily, like, like, what does it look like to show up for a shift at Qualut? And just, that's your job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are a lot of, um, you know, unsavory jobs out there. I guess there's a lot of people who couldn't imagine working in an abattoir either, but. Uh. Well, and, you know, I mean, the, the nature of whaling and it being very controversial, you know, I mean, my sense at least from talking with Einar, is that the guys that work over there are very aware 
and they kind of keep up to date with the discourse around this because, you know, I mean, it is such a controversial job and I mean, quite frankly, like dealing with activists, it's like pretty normal for them, you know, I mean, mm. uh, not just uh, this most recent um, demonstration down at the harbor, but, you know, I mean, like historically, uh, we've had people from Sea Shepherd and other organizations uh, like Kayak Up, Kvalfjordur. Mm. Uh, there have been some incidents, I think, with people kind of like, kind of like like uh, throwing smoke grenades kind of like around the whaling ships and stuff like that. And so, you know, I mean, like my sense is that um, the average guy that works at Kvalur like definitely kind of has a little bit more of a nuanced view on these things that we than we might think, you know. And yet, yeah, I mean, uh, this is also one of the better paying jobs uh, in like 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 for a certain kind of person. Certainly. Um, and I mean, uh, the the well, this has become, as with any such topic that stretches over decades of of uh, of discussion. I mean, it has become a little bit convoluted. For example, the main arguments for whaling currently are one freedom of employment and uh, the fact that uh, banning it is legally complicated in my understanding because the original 1940 something law uh, allowing whaling did not uh, include any provisions on when or how uh, it could be um, stopped. Yeah, I mean, my my understanding is that there is no mechanism that forces whaling permits to be issued, but once a whaling permit is issued, there's no mechanism for it to be taken back, which is why it was so complicated this year, because the whaling permits had been... Th there had been a permit issued, basically, for like a two-year mm -hmm. time span. Um, and so since the permit was already issued, there was no way to kind of retroactively ban it. And so, I mean, my understanding is that once this season is mm. over, then it becomes a little bit easier. Yes, uh, depending on which minister. Uh, yeah. Well, and there, yes. there will, which I mean, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, yeah. Um, another thing on the, because you mentioned Sea Shepherd, and they famously uh, sunk some whaling boats in the 80s. Uh, yes. Which I don't know if, uh, I mean, obviously that's a, that's a, you can see the, the severity of it, but for a fishing nation, especially at the time where when people were still, many fishermen were still losing their lives at sea, you know, sinking a boat, uh, it's, it's, uh, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is, uh, <laughs> essentially the only act of terrorism to have really ever been carried out in Iceland. And I mean, obviously that is maybe a loaded way to put it, but you know, I mean, obviously that kind of level of destruction, uh, has a certain impact. Um, I mean, it's actually a rather dramatic story. I mean, uh, I don't have all the details of it in front of me, but you know, I mean, basically these two guys uh, were just like working in fish processing plants and stuff in Iceland for a season to kind of just get all this insider knowledge. And they were kind of like working, I mean, not at Kvalur, but they were kind of just working in the industry to just kind of get, um, yeah, just kind of insider knowledge of the boats and how some of these facilities work. And, you know, I mean, just kind of one night they snuck onto uh, the two boats, um, Kvalur five and six. 
and you know they really just wreaked havoc they just kind of uh, broke all the pipes that they could turned all the knobs and buttons the wrong way and just really kind of did as much damage as quickly as they could um and then they were leaving the country uh, and on their way to Keflavik Airport, and they were even pulled over for speeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and the police weren't like looking for them at that point, um, and so it was just like completely ordinary traffic stop, and you know uh, nothing happened, and they just went on their way and left Iceland forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, someone should make a movie about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah, you know, I mean, um, certainly this letter from Arni Finson um, about the Paul Watson actions. You know, I mean, like, this does kind of get to the core of a lot of things about whaling here because, you know, I mean, sure, like, on the one hand, it's maybe maybe childish to kind of, um, you know, so so clearly there's a moral argument against whaling. And, sure. you, and, 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 and you can oppose whaling on those grounds. And yet, you know, I mean, like for the outside world, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, something to kind of keep in mind is there are more and less productive ways of getting people to do what you want them to do. And tone matters and being informed matters and just kind of being, yeah, I mean, just like a little bit aware of the subtleties and um you know i mean obviously if i want to get somebody to do something that i want them to do like i'm not going to call them names um and so you know i mean unfortunately i think that i think it's really unfortunate how the whaling debate which should essentially just kind of be taking place from like an ecological and biological perspective and then there's also obviously like the moral and ethical dimension but i mean like unfortunately the conversation's kind of been derailed and it's kind of been turned into this like nationalism thing and you know i mean i think for a certain kind of person this is about independence and it's about doing what we want our way Mm. you know which i mean of course is also like a red herring right because um you know like it like it 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 is fair to say that it's not a tradition that it's not a tradition and that it is you know basically one company Kvalud, that's doing this um which is essentially one man i mean obviously there is like a culture around this now there are you know about 1 to 200 people that are uh employed either full or part time by Kvalud. you know so i mean uh, obviously there is something there now but you know i mean it it doesn't stretch back very far into Icelandic history. And I think that it's very unfortunate how it's been kind of given this political valence that it maybe didn't need to have. Like we could be having this conversation from a different perspective. Certainly. But uh, speaking of how people frame it, I mean, this whole uh, discussion of uh, um, people controlling access to natural resources and, uh you know if they can find a sustainable way to to uh use those resources they should be able to that's the hedna um that's uh the that's how you tie it into the independence um argument yeah, that, um, yeah. because Icelanders i mean uh the cod wars in uh the first decades after after the independence were some of the most important um political fights Iceland was having on the international states, that is the right to um, oversee their own uh, using of resources. Yes. But back to the um, effect of uh, foreign influence, um, environmentalist Andres Nair uh, 
recently was trying to urge his fellow countrymen to um, resist the um, resist the call to be uh, rallied uh, in opposition to foreign influence. Mm, yes, yeah. Um, re- uh, sort of echoing that same. Because in the letter that Arne Finnsson sent in 2007, mm. they mentioned that they believed a lot of the local opposition was in response to um, actions such as sinking of the color ships. So now when, uh, you know, Hollywood stars are, are um, um, protesting and asking and and a, suggesting a boycott of uh, the film Icelandic film industry, um, there's definitely this danger of, uh, you know, pro-whalers being able to rally the locals on the grounds of not letting those foreigners tell them what to do. I think that it is entirely possible to oppose whaling and nevertheless find it a little bit rich and, I mean, yes, honestly, slightly annoying uh, to see some of these statements from international media figures about Iceland um, and the trick with such a charged issue is to find a way to, you know, have an ethical stance and to also not kind of give in to a certain kind of, you know, knee-jerk reaction to what other people are saying, um, you know, because, yes, I mean, obviously there are ethical arguments against whaling. And, you know, I mean, it's certainly just like looking at some of these numbers, you know, I mean, like the whales that did not instantly die, you know, I mean, like an average time of 11 minutes is yeah, it's just excruciating, awful. you know, yeah. and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, to, to play devil's advocate, right? I mean, if there is an atrocity going on, yeah, of course, we have like a moral obligation to identify that and to call the people out who are doing it. And, you know, I mean, of course, the reason why this issue is so emotional is because, you know, whales have language. They live to be, of, in general, they live to be very old and they have relationships with their family members. They live in these pods and, you know, like they have, they, they have culture, you know, I mean, uh, there are, there are killer whales that kind of speak different dialects and hunt slightly differently. And so, you know, I mean, these are all very kind of human things. And so we clearly kind of identify somehow with whales. We see very human aspects in them. So, you know, I mean, of course it's natural for people to get emotional about killing these animals. Um, but and let's not forget, it's the, according to recent surveys, the majority of the Icelandic nation is against whaling. Yeah, but I mean, still, nevertheless, I think that maybe some people are surprised by how narrow that margin was recently. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that probably if you take a straw poll in most Western nations, you know, I mean, yeah, like you'd probably just get unanimous opposition to whaling. I mean, especially in countries where it's just never been practiced, obviously. Um, you know, so I mean, maybe that might surprise some people that, you know, I mean, it is more like 60 to 40 these days. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I think we'll leave it here for now. There will certainly be more to talk about uh, as the discussion on whaling is ongoing and and it's still not known how many or, or any whales will be cut this season. Not even 
getting into the topic of the next one. So, um, yes, but hopefully this gives a little bit more insight into the current situation. Yes. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you for listening. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.